Hi, everyone. Malika here. Today, I'm handing over the mic to our guest host, Natasha Del Toro. She has a story about a social justice fight for indigenous communities in Argentina that's decades in the making. I'll be back on Wednesday. 98 years ago, indigenous tribes in the north of Argentina were violently attacked, and there's never been justice. Until now. The so-called Napalpi Massacre took place in July 1924. This year, in a unique trial for Argentina, prosecutors said the state committed crimes against humanity on these indigenous communities. A historic trial in Argentina seeks to bring to light what happened in 1924 during the Napalpi massacre, where up to 500 members of Native people were killed by police forces and ranchers. This week is the anniversary of the Napalpi massacre, and while the trial's verdict is a victory and a step forward for visibility, it's also a moment for the country to reflect on racism and violence against the indigenous people. I'm Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Just a warning, this episode contains descriptions of violence. My name is Teresa Bo. I'm a correspondent for Al Jazeera in Latin America, and I'm based in Buenos Aires, in Argentina. So, Teresa, tell us about the Napalpi Massacre. When did it happen and how? Well, the Napalpi Massacre was a killing that happened in 1924. That's almost 100 years ago. And it happened when a group of indigenous communities that were working on cotton fields in northern Argentina in the province of Chaco rebelled against the treatment that we're receiving. They were asking for better wages, for better working conditions, among other things. They belong to the Com indigenous community and the Mokoit indigenous community. So at the time, the response by the state, but also by the landowners was brutal. Security forces and ranchers from the area attacked them. They surrounded them. And what is estimated is that uh, between 400 and 500 people were killed. You met the only survivor that was left of this massacre. Tell me about her. Who is she? And what does she remember from that experience? We traveled to Colonia Origen, that's in the province of Chaco, to meet with Rosa Grillo. She's the last survivor of the Napalpi massacre. She lives in a very impoverished area in a small house with her children. And when you talk to her, she's over 100 years old and she doesn't remember everything. She's in a very frail state, you know. I passed out and woke up when I was given water. I got home and looked up and saw a plane flying overhead. There were children on the ground. This is the pain I have carried forever. I was not able to speak. She suddenly started telling me, oh, they were throwing candy from the planes. And then you put two and two together and talk to anthropologists and all of the people in the community talk about the plane. Apparently it was something that was very impressive to see a plane at the time flying around where they were located. And what people say is that they were throwing candy from the plane so the children would come out of their houses and to, you know, get people to get together 
And that's when they surrounded them. She started crying and she she kept on repeating the same thing over and over again. It's like she was remembering hurt. You know, when you look at someone's eyes and obviously she lost her father, it's something that traumatized her. It was very moving to talk to someone that was present at a historical event in 1924. That seems like such a long time ago and still you have people that survived that massacre, that knew what happened to their communities. It's incredible to me that, again, this massacre occurred in 1924 and that this history wasn't known. How is it that it was buried for so long? Well, you know, I think it also, it's interesting. It's a whole history of Argentina. And Argentina has had one of the most repressive policies against indigenous communities in Latin America. And the fact that it's actually being tried right now, it is very symbolic in Argentina. And this is the first time that this is being tried, that it's being investigated. And in a way, it's also the first time that the Argentine state is being, in a way, being called responsible for what happened almost 100 years ago. What happened in 1924 has a huge impact on the treatment that indigenous communities continue to receive today. This trial to discover what happened in Napalpi started because of an investigator within the community. His name was Juan Chico. He was a member of the Com indigenous community, and he started hearing and listening to all the stories in his community from grandparents, among other things. And he wrote two books about the massacre, I started saying something needs to be told about what what happened to our communities, why we are what we are, because when he was looking at his surrounding, he saw discrimination, he saw neglect from the Argentine state, among many other things. And he was the main witness in the trial. He was the one that was leading not only the investigation, but also he was part of it as a witness. But he died of COVID-19 last year, and that's why he was not present in the trial this year. Oh, that's so sad that he died of COVID-19 and didn't get to see the end of the trial. He didn't get to see the end of the trial and he was very committed. His efforts were extraordinary and he's the one who actually made this trial happen. Is there also, in addition to some of these stories that have been passed down from different generations, is there also physical evidence that they've been able to find? Well, the Argentine anthropologist team is currently working in the area, trying to find those who were killed. They haven't been able to locate a precise area where the uh, mass graves were located. So they are working right now in the province of Chaco, and they're working to try to find, you know, the remains of those who were killed. That would be, you know, another proof of what happened. It's, it's not easy because it's a very broad area and resources are scarce in Argentina. But at the same time, it's something that, that is important. Let's talk about the trial because you were you were there in Chaco province. Yeah. Describe that scene for me. You know, what what was it like? Primero nos vamos a referir al contexto histórico en el que sucedieron los hechos de la masacre de Napalpí. It lasted for about a month. It was the prosecutors and a judge and then witnesses, you know, where they were meeting around two times a week. And it was what is known as a truth trial, because none of the perpetrators is alive to face the consequences. 
And uh, throughout the whole process, they were listening to anthropologists, victims, relatives of those who were killed. It was kind of like revising history for Argentina. And in a way, telling a story that was neglected for a very long time, talking about not only about indigenous communities in the country, how the killing happened, how it was planned and perpetrated by an allegiance by security forces and landowners, what happened afterwards, how communities were forced to assimilate, how people were forced to forget their culture, their language, how to raise their children, how up until today, you know, it was like I was talking to an indigenous girl, a common indigenous girl in Chaco now, and she was showing me some of her notes from school and everything was related to Argentinian history. You wouldn't see a part of it where the com history is included or, you know, it's kind of, for me, it was like very shocking, you know, because it's total assimilation. And that's what, you know, many of the members of indigenous communities denounce that that's what happened after the massacre. I think it's a story that's fascinating because it's something that, that continues in a way to have a huge impact today. Do we know if this massacre was an isolated event or do we know of other events like this that have happened? No, I mean, this is one massacre that is now being investigated, but it was not the only one. There were several other massacres that are also being investigated of indigenous communities in the country. It's not something that happened only in Argentina, but what I do think that is quite unique in Argentina is that in Argentina, the level of repression that followed all of these stories was brutal. The killings, the assimilation, you know, and that's what happens when you see today at a national census, as you see that of the 47 million Argentines, only one million people considered themselves to have indigenous descent. And that's a very small number in a very large country. So the trial ended in May, and what did the judge conclude? Well, the judge concluded that the Argentine state committed what's known as crimes against humanity, but because the perpetrators are not alive, there cannot be consequences. But the judge also made a series of demands, for example, providing better health care, better housing, that all schools need to be taught about the Napalpi massacre, that a series of museums need to be built. It's all mostly like remembrance and acknowledging that this happened. But when you talk to anthropologists and sociologists that work in the area, you know, they would have liked to see a ruling that says more investment in education, better, you know, improving these people's lives. But the trial was not about this. It was mostly about bringing justice and revising history. We're talking about this violent event that happened almost a century ago. And I'm curious, though, how are these indigenous communities treated today in Argentina? Is there discrimination against them? And what kinds of conditions are they living in? Well, I, I think the, the Napalpi uh, trial was important in a way to, to show the conditions that many indigenous communities continue to live today. When you go to the province of Chaco, to the province of Formosa, they are still among the poorest in the country with no housing, almost no health care, almost no education. Resources are very short. They're amongst the 
poorest in the country. And uh, abuse and discrimination is very common, especially by security forces in the area. For my children, it's difficult to accept that they call us Indians or they leave us aside. We're not animals. They cannot come and tell us what to do. They cannot kill us when they want. During the pandemic, there was a video that went viral when police forces go inside a home of common indigenous people and they harassed the women and they were very violent towards them. And this generated a very big scandal among human rights organizations in the country. But what we know is that this is not something unique. It's something that, that continues to happen. During the trip I made to Chaco, the last time I was talking to this old man, And he was telling me how security forces entered his small house. And he's, he lived in a very poor, poor uh, little house. And how they went inside there and accused him of stealing beef and how they beat him. And his granddaughter was there. And when he was telling me the story, she started crying because she could remember how her grandfather was being beaten by security forces. That's why the prosecutor was saying that trial is important because it's a way of training security forces that that abuse is not tolerated, that repression is not tolerated. And it's a way of starting to try to change the mentality of the judiciary, but also of security forces across the country. You know, this seems like a small step to take. It's a very important symbolic step, but one small step in a lot of change that needs to happen moving forward. But more broadly, could you tell me how people of color are treated in Argentina? Argentina is an atypical country because it's very rare to see people of color. Most of the Afro-descendants, for example, they either died during a series of epidemics that happened here or they were sent to a war with Paraguay and Brazil. So it's not common to see in Buenos Aires people, you know, Afro-descendants. And it's interesting because that has also started a movement of people trying to find their roots and what happened to, to their ancestors. But I think mostly when you say people of color, I would mostly refer to indigenous communities. I think discriminations against indigenous groups is a fact. It's something that has been denied in Argentina for a very long time, that governments have failed to address it, even though there have been attempts. But until now, I don't think it has been successful. And you were talking about this, uh, like the racial identity of Argentina, its ancestry. Argentina is a country that's 97% white. How do the political leaders present the racial identity of Argentina? I think that it's been a problem how one president, you call it either from the left or from the center or from the right, it's like they all fall into the same pattern of talking about Argentina of being a country of European immigrants. I think that's part of Argentina's psychology, you know, that's the only story they like to tell of the people that live in the country. In fact, the latest incident that we have was President Alberto Fernandez when he said in a public statement, The Mexicans came from the Indians, the Brazilians came from the jungle, but we Argentines came from the ships, and they were ships that came from Europe. And so we build our society. He was trying to refer to a writer, Octavio Paz, 
but he said it wrong. It was kind of a big scandal here. And that was very insulting for many people in Argentina, especially indigenous groups or people who are studying Argentinian reality. Like, why would you stress that your population is mostly European and, you know, I think this year, what's quite unique is that there was a census. And for the first time in the questionnaire, you were asked, what's your origin? Whether you consider yourself to be descendant from indigenous communities or Afro-descendants. And we have never heard of something like this before. It's interesting what you're talking about, the census and how people are now, it sounds like there are some real changes in perception around racial identity. Yes, I think so. And I think that the most important part of it is that lots of people are proud of it. They're proud to dig into their own history. I've been hearing stories, even in my case, about a great-grandfather who married a member of the Quilmes indigenous communities. And I wasn't even aware of that. Now I'm trying to do my own digging because this was something that nobody spoke about. That's so interesting. And of course, our listeners wouldn't be able to see you uh, but you're somebody with light hair, light eyes. You're a white presenting Latina. So you're saying you have gone back and started digging into your own background. Yeah, I mean, I felt it was interesting how Juan Chico, you know, he started talking to his communities and finding all these things that families talk to each other about histories in the family. And I was, you know, I, I started talking to my father about our own ancestors and who came here and you know I have a British family and I have Spanish family and then I have like a, a Dane great 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 granddad and apparently he's the one that married a member of the Quilmes indigenous communities that's like outside the capital Buenos Aires but I mean I don't know I'm starting to investigate into my own heritage and I think that this whole thing of just being European and enshrining European values I think that in Latin America, it has made us commit many mistakes, this whole love for everything that comes from abroad. And I think that it's interesting to start finding our own essence. And I think that's a work in progress. And nowadays, I think even with things like 23andMe, I mean, all you have to do is you can check your DNA. <laughs> I know, I'm going to do that soon, I think. We're all connected. Whoever, you know, We're all connected. We're all connected. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez with Nagin Oliayi, Amy Walters, Alexander Locke, Ruby Zaman, and me, Natasha Del Toro, in for Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Elmalek and Adam Abugad are our engagement producers. We'll be back. <laughs> <laughs>